16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to Star Diary, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hello and welcome to the June 2021 episode of Star Diary, the monthly stargazing podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. Each month, we reveal the best things to see in the evening and sometimes morning sky over the coming weeks. I'm Ian Todd, the magazine's staff writer, and I'm joined as always by our reviews editor and practical astronomy expert, Mr. Paul Money. Paul, thanks for joining me again. Hello, Ian. Yes, uh, another month to come round and lots of things to see. Yes. Um, do you find that the uh, sort of lengthening days of summer are uh, uh, approaching and, and encroaching? <laughs> Uh, it's it's one of those things that we've always assumed that uh, this time of year is a time for astronomers basically to sort of sit back, clean equipment, don't do any astronomy, and uh, and to me that that's beside the point. You know, there there is still plenty to see because there are things like double stars and whatnot. You know, for example, you can actually observe. Uh, so uh, they're not affected by light pollution or or in actual fact the light summer nights and uh, and I like looking at globular clusters as well personally so uh, you know so it's one of those things that there are still things to see and, and the mood is so obvious you know <laughs> yeah yeah it, do, it don't matter about the light summer nights when you can observe the moon and of course the moon is the guide often to uh, many of the objects to see, such as the planets and the bright stars. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so there is still plenty to see, and we've got a few planets around as well. Yeah, I, I, I don't rest during the summer, you know. And, of course, our reviews never rest because we have to review equipment regardless. So yeah. uh, we just carry on. So, yeah, I, I was of the same opinion that I used to stop or, or, or really curtail what I did. Uh, I have to say until I started doing the reviews. 
And then when you've got to do the reviews, you have to go out. And I thought, actually, this isn't too bad. Mm. <laughs> I suppose the further north you are, the problem, I mean, I remember going to Scotland um, in the summer for a holiday with my parents. And uh, I was I was just into astronomy, so I was excited, you know, going to be in the middle of nowhere, brilliant sort of thing. Of course, got up there and it was sort of like July and it was so bright, the sky, you couldn't see anything. <laughs> There's only the moon up there. So uh, so I do feel for them in that respect, but they have got the wilds, the wonderful wilds up there. <laughs> and sadly, the midges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can testify to that. But yeah, no, there is there is obviously um, this month in June there is a, a really interesting a daytime event happening on the tenth of June, which will which will obviously come to. But um, let's uh, kick things off at the start of the month. What should what should we be looking for at the, at the start of June? Well, um, actually, it's one of those things that uh, when the moon is near to a planet it's at the beginning of the month, then you often find at the end of the month it'll often repeat because obviously the, the lunar orbit sort of thing, twenty seven days sidereal motion. Um, 29 days via the solar motion. And so the thing is, sort of thing, on the 1st of June, the moon, the gibbous moon, is below Jupiter. So, uh, you know, so when you look at the moon on the 1st of June, then, uh, hey, did you realise that rhymes? Good grief, I'm a poet now, good <laughs> grief. But, um, you know, it's a great way to find the planets because the planets themselves, planet means wandering star, and planets often just look like a star. And if you don't follow it and see that it slowly moves against the background sky, then you can be fooled into thinking it's a particularly bright star. So having the moon as a guide is a really great way of finding the planets. So ironically, the moon was below Saturn on the 31st because Saturn and Jupiter are still reasonably close. Jupiter is leaving Saturn behind now sort of thing after last year's fantastic uh, conjunction. But uh, so 31st of May, Saturn had the moon below it. On the 1st of June, the moon is below Jupiter. But then it all repeats at the very end of the month. Now, this is the morning sky. So obviously the skies are getting lighter. So you're really looking around about 3 a.m., that sort of time. So you have to be a hardy soul <laughs> to be out. Of, or either that or just stay up all night sort of thing, you yeah. know, and watch and watch the glorious sunrise, the wonderful dawn sort of thing. Listen to the dawn chorus, etc. You know, the skies are often really cracking. Um, in the morning because the the atmosphere if it's been a nice still night the atmosphere settled down and you often get some of the i've had some of my best viewing in the early hours of the morning i have to say so uh yeah so beginning of the month first jupiter and the moon sort of thing and then um actually on the 27th the moon is to the lower right of saturn they'll be roughly south at 3 a.m uh so we've got on the 27th of june the moon is below saturn and then on the next night, the 28th, it's actually between. It forms a shallow triangle with Jupiter and Saturn. And then on the 29th, it's to the lower left of Jupiter. So as I say, it tends to repeat as long as they occur at the beginning of the month. But this will gradually get out of sync as we go through the rest of the year sort of thing. So it won't, it'll stop happening. So uh, I always like it that you get two bites of the cherry Jupiter and the moon this month. Yeah. <laughs> Are um, Jupiter and Saturn going to remain as uh, morning objects for the rest of the year? Um, they'll stay morning objects for another a month or so, but then we'll reach opposition. And the key with opposition is that's the, the, the turning point whereby they move from the morning to the evening sky. And so, you know, it's uh, we, we've got to wait for oppositions for them. And uh, I haven't got the dates to hand immediately, but it will be fairly soon, July and August for the opposition. I think it's August in actual fact is the opposition date. And so, you know, we, they will stay in the morning for another sort of month or so. Uh, and then, um, and it's a funny thing because they rise as the sun sets. So with the sun setting so late at night, 
it'll still feel for a few months like they're in the morning sky at their best. But later in the year, they'll move into the evening and then it'll be a lot easier. And people will notice them more because naturally the public are more perceptive of things when it's in the evening sky, when it's generally when more people are likely to be out. And of course, as hopefully lockdowns ease, people will be going out sort of thing. You'll be able to go to an observing site and hopefully public stargazing might start up again. But let's see what happens with that. We don't really know, do we, what's going to happen. No, definitely, but we'll we'll obviously um cover that, you know, um as and when, you know, in in, in future yeah. future episodes as it happens. Now we are also looking a bit towards the inner planets, aren't we? We are. Now this is the, the good thing is that they're in the evening sky and still on display. Um we had brilliant Mercury during May, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I, as it happens, sort of thing. <laughs> I haven't seen it because of the weather. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> it's one of the first times for ages that I haven't seen Mercury in its evening apparition, so I'm quite disappointed, I have to say. But the beauty is, sort of thing, that uh, right at the end of May, Venus and Mercury were close together. So Venus is in the evening sky, and and so is, in actual fact, uh, Mars. And Mars is one of those things that it's actually been slowly losing ground against the twilight um because what you tend to find is that it manages to keep ahead for a while and stay in the evening sky but it's losing that race now and especially in june you'll start to notice it because mars will start to descend lower and lower into the evening twilight and of course the the twilight is encroaching because it's getting towards summer with the solstice on the 21st of june venus is looping it's a very low apparition for venus but because it's so bright Venus is quite prominent. And again, we have the moon to guide us sort of thing. So what we've got is the moon on the 11th. Now, if you really like challenges, and I do like challenges, I like to see if this is possible to see. Um, But on the 11th, the moon is just a few degrees to the lower right of Venus. But the moon will be 1% illuminated. It'll be an incredibly thin crescent, very low down in a bright evening sky, you know. So the key is, if you can find Venus, I would, I would say straight away, make sure the sunset. So you're talking about half an hour after sunset and start looking towards the northwest. And, uh, but I mean, you know, it's, it's, one of, it's very ethereal seeing a really thin crescent moon. You know, so it, it, it just it looks magical almost sort of thing, you know. I, I know I'm a scientist sort of thing, but I'm all waxing lyrical now sort of this very thin crescent moon. So it'll be to the lower right of Venus by a few degrees. So Venus might be a good guide to it. So if you spot Venus, search with your binoculars to the lower right, making sure the sun set, and hopefully you might pick out this, this very slender 1% illuminated uh, crescent moon. Now, the next night, it gets easier because, ironically, the moon swaps sides <laughs> and will be higher in the sky. And on the 12th, sort of thing, up to the upper left of uh, Venus. So, uh, And the crescent will be, I, I can't remember the illumination, but it'll certainly be a lot more illuminated. But it'll still be a nice, thin crescent. So if you miss it on the 11th, perhaps because of cloud or perhaps the haze is too much down below, because this is the key. You need an uncluttered clear horizon sort of thing. It's only a few degrees above the horizon, I have to say. So the 12th is a second chance to get it as a slim crescent. And then the next night, it's next to Mars. So this sort of gives you a clue that Mars is now dropping into the evening twilight because the gaps before were several days before the moon went from Venus to Mars. Now we're talking about just a day. 
So that's, you know, quite important. It shows that Mars is getting closer. And in fact, during July, uh, Mars and Venus will actually join together. They'll be in conjunction, but very difficult. But as you say, we'll cover that next month. So 11th, the 12th and 13th of June, that's when you look out for the crescent moons passing Venus first on the 11th and 12th, and then to the upper right of Mars, and it'll be a thicker crescent, so it'll be a lot easier. And hopefully, you'll have a look and you'll see the Earth shine. One of those things we haven't, I don't think we've mentioned before, but uh, the Earth shine is when sort of the, the light is bounced off the Earth's bright atmosphere, and it fills in. It's, it's a lack of photographers filling flash because it fills in the night side, gently illuminates the night side. If you're on the moon, on the night side of the moon sort of thing, then what you'd see is the Earth high up in the sky, quite well illuminated sort of thing, and, and three quarters full probably. So a lot of light would be bathing. Should you be able to walk around on the moon and you'd be able to see what you were doing? <clears throat> because you, you know, you've you got this moonlight, uh, the Earth light, sorry, to actually show it. So the Earth shine is what we call it. And it, so you get this wonderful crescent, which is the illumination from the sun, and you can see the ghostly rest of the moon. And I think that is just a magical. So the 13th in particular will make a great photograph, um, catching the crescent moon as the sunlight and the Earth shine and this dot of light in the twilight, which will be Mars as well. So, uh, you know, that, that's something definitely to look out for and hope we don't get clouds. I know. That's a lovely sort of um, three three days in a row there of, of really, really nice things to look out for. And you can also sort of, um, as you follow the, the the positions changing over time, it really ge- it really gives you a feel of the, of, of the uh, mechanics of the solar system, doesn't it? You know, sort of what's happening. Yes, yeah, because you see real motion. And if you, one of the things with Venus is if you watch its motion against the horizon. And and especially if you use the same observing site, take note where you see Venus on the first of the month and then watch how it slowly moves position against the horizon as it's too moving in its path around its orbit around the sun. And so it appears to move gradually to the left. So uh, it's it's an interesting thing to keep an eye on the clockwork motion of the solar system, which <laughs> technically we see every t- every month because we see the moon going around us. So it gives us a, but I think it's even more important when you see the planets. And as I say, uh, with Mars dropping down to the horizon as well, sort of thing, Mars is losing that race uh, because it's a long way from us. So it's the far side of the actual uh, sort of like the, 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 the sun. So we're losing it dropping down as the sun catches up. And of course, it's not the sun moving. It's the earth moving around the sun. But it makes it look to us as if it's the sun moving against the background stars. But the reality is it's actually us doing the moving. (laughs) Did you feel the earth move in? I know. No, of course you didn't. We don't, do we? We don't feel the turning of the earth. We don't feel the motion of the earth in its orbit around the sun. But uh, it is. It's uh, watch it all closely, and when it, and it, you can understand how the astronomers, the early astronomers, were f- were trying to struggle to figure this out. Yeah, you know. So it, it is an intuitive sort of thing. You can understand why they thought everything went round us uh, so long ago. Uh, but it was meticulous observations of the motions, especially of Mars, sort of thing, uh, that uh, you know, we we actually got to understand the proper motions of the solar system yeah the the interesting thing about what's happening to mars is um also you know it was last year that we had the uh, incredible opposition of mars it was brilliant sort of thing because you know it was the closest was two years earlier but it was very low for us Mm. you know so it wasn't at its best and in fact i got there were terrible views i had with my telescopes but uh, 
we always find in the Northern Hemisphere, um, for the UK especially, that you know, two years later, it's further up the ecliptic. So it was up sort of like, you know, up towards sort of like Cetus and Pisces when it was at its best. So it was really well displayed. So although the disc wasn't quite as big as it was two years earlier, we got a really good view. But of course, now the disc is quite tiny because mm. Mars is a long way from us now sort of thing. So uh, yeah, God of those days, the uh, opposition. And we'll have to wait another sort of 15 years, I'm afraid, uh, before we get those re- repeating again. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. But um, we're also moving on to a non-planetary object for our, for our next entry in June's Stargazing Diary. Now, if you like challenges, and this is a real challenge, I have to say, um, then <laughs> the asteroid Vesta, Vesta is about magnitude 7.3 and it's been gradually fading because it was quite bright. It was almost bright as Uranus at 5.8 when it was at opposition. But it, like Mars, has slowly been losing ground. The good news is Vesta is still fairly high up and it's in Leo. And during June, it moves under Cherton and then south of Denebola as well sort of thing as it moves into Virgo. Now, in the process very early in the month sort of thing. Uh, you're looking really from the 9th to the 12th of June, it passes under the Leo triplet of galaxies. Now, the thing is, there's a, the, you could say it's a double challenge because this whole area of sky is now beginning to suffer from the light and nights. So looking for 9th and 10th magnitude galaxies, you know, most people probably wouldn't bother. But I think this is a special event to at least try. And so we've got this magnitude 7.3 asteroid, this minor world sort of thing, and it's sliding underneath and it'll be directly below Messier 65 on the 10th. So the Leo triplet is a lovely grouping of it. He's got Messier 65, Messier 66, and NGC 3628 above them. Now that's going to be a lot harder than the two main Messier objects. Uh, I mean, they are magnitude 9 and magnitude 10 galaxies. So we are talking a bit of a challenge here. But the key is to try to leave it not too late before they've set, but late enough so that they are, although they're getting low, the sky will at least be a bit darker. The sun will be below the horizon more. So it will give you more chance to spot the galaxies. So it'll be really interesting to see if anybody gets this. You need to be looking over towards the sort of west, about 11.30, I estimate, sort of thing, to have a go at this. So uh, we won't have reached the summer solstice at that point. So that's the 21st. But the sky will be getting light. I mean, it's, it's you know, already getting light. And we're recording this in late May. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, um, you know, I, I already see my colleagues, my deep sky colleagues going, whoa, is me. We, we, we're losing the deep sky now. We're going to have to stop doing our imaging. And I'm saying, no, keep doing it sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. you never know what you might capture. So, uh, you know, I mean, supernovas could go off in galaxies. During last summer, during July, we had a supernova in M61 sort of thing, you know, and it didn't stop people imaging it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I took an image of it sort of thing myself. So uh, there we are. So it's a challenge. Um, you've got this uh, asteroid, which is visible in binoculars, I have to say. But because of the sky conditions, I suspect the galaxies will need a telescope. So around about the 9th through to about the 12th, that's when it passes below the actual triplet of galaxies. See how many galaxies, or if you can even see the galaxies. And certainly, I hope people contact the magazine if they've actually got it, because this is, I say, quite a challenge, really, to do it in such a light sky. But why not have a challenge sort of thing, you know? Hey, 
you know, we, let's let's have a go. Let, let's tease and test the old eyesight sort of to see what we can see. Because as I say, we are easy to give up on some objects sometimes because we think, oh, well, they're too low or the sky's too light. And I say, well, this is this is one of those times where you it gives you a chance to try it uh, because you've got a reason to. Mm-hmm. You've got an unusual, you know, say situation with an asteroid moving below these galaxies. And when you think, I mean, I can't remember the distances of M6560 off the top of my head, but you are talking millions of light years. And then you're talking about an asteroid that's right in our own backyard. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, in the main asteroid belt itself sort of thing. So a complete huge difference in scale of distance. Yeah, I mean, I think um, a lot of people might um, be surprised to hear that you could actually see, uh, you know, an asteroid belt asteroid. I mean, uh, it, 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 is there any hope at all for, for people who, who would like to see it just with the naked eye, without binoculars? Um, not with the naked eye now. Um, Vesta was the unusual one in that when it was at opposition, technically, I mean, because Uranus is naked eye, it, but just, you have to have very good sky conditions, dark, uh, uncluttered, no haze. So, uh, you know, and good eyesight as well. So there's a lot of things need to work in your favour to see sort of Vesta when it was at its brightest. Um, it's now magnitude 7.3, so that puts it back into the range of binoculars. Um, but if you know where the Leo triplet is, and you usually use Iota uh, Leonis as a guide to move into that region, then, you know, you should be able to find this seventh magnitude star, extra star, uh, amongst the normal stars of Leo. So, uh, you know, and the thing about watching for minor planets and asteroids is basically if you get a run of clear nights, you can see which one's moved. So the stars themselves stay fixed with respect to each other. So the dot that's moving is the asteroid or the minor planet. So that's the key to identifying it. It's a little bit like some of the moons of the solar system. If you're hunting faint moons of the solar system, you hope that you'll get a run of clear nights one after the other. So that if you've identified the object as, say, Hyperion, Saturn, then you look the next night and if it's moved, yes, you've got it. If it's still in the same spot, sorry, you've got a star in the background. <laughs> so this is the same with the minor worlds and the minor and then the asteroid sort of thing. You look for its motion and that gives it away then over a series of nights. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, it is definitely worth doing that. Um, heading out night after, night after night, but, you know, provided the, the weather's you know, the clear skies. <laughs> yes. I find it even fascinating to sort of go out, um, you know, it's sort of bad, e- easier in the winter when it when it gets really dark earlier, but you can go out at one part of the night and have a look at the stars. And then you go out, you know, an hour or two later and, and just and just note how they've moved, even over the course of, you know, a few hours. It's really interesting, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's one of those things that it surprises people. So, I mean, I I'm I'm one of those that I will stay out quite a long time. And um, if you're looking through a telescope or imaging through a telescope, you you sort of don't realise until you step back and look at the sky and think, hang on, Orion was over there, and now it's <laughs> like 30 degrees further across the sky. And you don't realise how much the sky has moved, and then you realise you've been out for a few hours, <laughs> sort of thing, you know. And you do get carried away, you know. You can get mesmerised by uh, either the image and all the visual observing, yeah. and uh, you lose track of time, and then suddenly you realise that an area of sky you were looking at that was well-placed in the south is now dropping down into the southwest and even the western horizon. You think, where did where did that time go? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Incredible. Okay, well, um, on to Mars again, I think, because it's not done yet, is it? <laughs> it isn't, and this is another challenge. And I say, quite often we won't show these up in the magazine because they are really difficult, sort of, because of the, the light skies. But uh, what we've got is on the twenty third 
Mars actually passes right smack through the uh, beehive open cluster, Messier 44. Um, but it will be extremely low down. It's in Cancer. This whole area of the sky is going to be light, of course. Uh, we are talking about just after the summer solstice. In fact, my observation, I would start on the 21st, but it's the 22nd, 23rd and 24th when it's on one edge on the 22nd. Then it's right in the middle on the 23rd and then it's on the other edge on the 24th. So the challenge here is that it is light night. Whether you'll see the cluster is a real, this is the challenge. You'll see Mars. Mars is, is bright enough to be seen sort of thing. Um, it'll be, you know, I, I can't remember the magnitude now, but, it, but it's still naked eye. So you'll be able to spot Mars. So the key is on the 23rd, look for Mars, 11 o'clock sort of thing, and look sort of see if you can see it. It'll be only a few degrees above the horizon. This is the key, again, an uncluttered horizon. No hills or buildings or trees in the way. And if you do spot it sort of thing, then just see if you can spot any faint twinklies <laughs> around in it. And that will be the cluster. And there are some really nice, I always like M44, and it's a shame we're losing it because it's got a lot of triangles in it, you know, <laughs> stars making up triangles. And that always sticks with my mind to sort of look at it. There's several triangles in it that are quite prominent. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it is a challenge this time sort of thing, but not the planet isn't the challenge. It's seeing the cluster. You know, they'll be over in the west-northwest, very low down, I say 11 o'clock. And I say, I think the planet should be relatively easy enough. And certainly by then it'll be low, but uh, you should be able to pick it up easily in binoculars. Whether you'll need a telescope so that you can improve the contrast to see the stars, that's the question. So try with binoculars. If you can't see the cluster with binoculars, if you've got a telescope, put a telescope on it. A spotting scope, even you know, I, one of the things I like is is I've got a, a spotting scope, um, and, and I used to carry around it in the car. You know, in the days when we could drive around <laughs> and go <laughs> <Yeah>. out, <laughs> you know, um, that uh, used to re reside in the car all the time. And the idea was that uh, I had something handy that I could quickly set up. And uh, I use it sometimes in my talks. Uh, you know, if it was clear after a talk, you know, I would actually show people, especially the public, if it was like a WI or something like that, I'd then show them the planets or or the moon or whatever in it. And the spotting scope is, you know, don't just look on the birds, look at the birds, you know, and nature, use it for the night sky as well. So if you've got something handy like that, just try it. And you never know, you might see the faint sparkling of the beehive cluster. You could say, you might see those bees swarming around Mars. <laughs> I just thought of that. <laughs> that sounds like a John, John Wyndham novel. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that is also uh, a, a good example of something that you always say, Paul, and it's using a relatively easy to find object to find uh, a more difficult object, you know, something that's a bit more challenging. But I suppose the the main event that we will probably be talking about because it'll be the most popular event um, that people will be looking at uh, in June it's sort of challenging for another reason. It'll be relatively easy to see given given nice weather, but um, it comes with a word of caution, doesn't it? Oh, it does. And this is uh, June the 10th. This is the partial eclipse of the sun. Now, the thing is, you've got to be careful. You can't look directly at the solar disk um, because it is dangerous to your eyes. Uh, so, uh, you know, you have to be very, very careful. And um, 
often we recommend using uh, a projection method. Use a refractor to project an image onto a card. Uh, and the idea of that is you cap off the finder scope so you're not tempted to look through the finder scope because, you know, believe me, it's been done sort of thing. And it's very dangerous to look at a magnified view of the sun. I mean, the sun's bright. You don't really want to look at it in daytime directly anyway sort of thing. But uh, so the key is you use a refractor sort of thing. And you, you can actually use the, the actual shadow of the refractor to line up on the sun sort of thing. So you don't have to look at the sun with the finder scope. You can use the telescope shadow. And when it's at its thinnest and a round circle, this is the refractor, then you, you pretty much know you're on target. And obviously, if you're, I would not use a, you can use a diagonal if you want sort of thing, but I would use straight through myself. So I have a piece of card directly behind the refractor and you'll see the image of the sun appear as you're adjusting it onto the screen. But to, to improve that, I'd have a screen around the front. Now, I did mention this to somebody and they turned around and said, but surely that would block the light of the sun. I said, no, you have to cut a hole in the front screen so the telescope pokes out. <laughs> so, but the rest of the card creates a shadow zone behind the refractor. And that improves the contrast to see the bright solar disk sort of thing so uh, and you never know there might be some sunspots as well so mm. by projecting it it's the safest way to do it sort of thing to observe the sun um you could also use a colander i you know i mean i am i don't think we own a colander it's one of those no. things that we never <laughs> needed it, it feels so old-fashioned i can remember one that mother used to have sort of very very old silver metal one sort of thing you know but uh, you know but the idea is if you use a colander it's got lots and lots of holes in and they create a pinhole camera so the like pinhole projection. And again, you know, you put a card behind it and the colander itself acts as the shield to create the darker zone. You get all these multiple little uh, suns actually projected. So now they will be small. So to be fair sort of thing, you'll have to wait until it's probably mid-eclipse when you actually get, you can notice the notch. But even so, it's quite something to actually see that using a simple kitchen tool like that, a colander, to actually view the eclipse of the sun, the partial eclipse of the sun. Super. And it is partial for us, of course. Um, but if you're up in the in the Arctic regions, and it's a great shame a lot of the trips aren't taking place at the moment. We're looking into them for the magazine, and many of them are not going ahead because there's so much still uncertainty about various companies allowing people into their waters to view it. But it is an annular eclipse. Now, an annular eclipse is where the moon is further away from the Earth, so therefore it's smaller than the sun, so when it goes in front of the sun, it creates this annulus of light, this ring of fire, they call it, around the sun. So, I mean, I'd love to, I've never seen, I've seen eclipses, I've seen total eclipses, but the annular I've not yet seen. So that's one of my little goals to see an annular eclipse. But, uh, but we still get a good partial eclipse sort of thing of the actual sun. And you want to be looking around about 10 a.m., I say use the projection method, but you know you can buy ready-made proper solar filters for telescopes. These are white light filters. They reduce the light by a factor of ninety-nine point nine 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 percent. So it lets through an incredibly tiny amount of light, so tiny it won't damage your eyesight. And so, but you must use the proper approved filters for this. You can buy the film itself the approved film and make your own filters as well but they need to be nice and taut 
over the front end of the telescope. And then you can observe the actual eclipse progressing. So, yes, it is a, we've got a daylight event, you know, so you don't have to stay up late at night. So I think it's daytime. Let's hope there's no clouds as usual. And it'll last until around about 12.24. So mid-eclipse is sort of like you know, around about 11. It depends on where you are in the country because the amount of um, eclipse of the sun sort of thing, it varies. So you can imagine sort of like Plymouth, uh, where I am in Horncastle and Lerwick sort of thing. Lerwick, you know, is furthest north and it'll see the most part of the sun actually eclipse itself. But uh, all parts of the UK will see a big notch taken out of the sun. But as I say, you really do have to be careful to observe it sort of thing to, uh, you know, so you don't damage your eyesight. But it's nice to have something in the daytime that you can observe. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think... Um... You know, lots of people when when they think of an eclipse, they might sort of think of the uh, you know like a, a, a total solar eclipse where you, where you can sort of during totality take a glimpse at, at it. But it, it's that idea of the fact that um, it's only partially obscured means that you are effectively looking at the sun. I mean, yeah. Where where do you sort of stand on uh, eclipse glasses? Um, they, they all work, you know, and they. I mean, again, buy them from reputable uh, firms. Um, I, I'm hoping they might still have some. I've, I've got one or two spare myself, sort of thing, at the moment, so I know I've got some to use. But uh, they're one of those things that you do have to look after them because if they get damaged, if the speck of dust grinds onto the surface, the slightest bit of sunlight passing through them could actually do because you you don't realise it's happening. This is the trouble. You don't have pain receptors actually in the eyeball. So you don't realise you, you could be cooking your eyeballs. So this is why you have to be very careful and make sure they are perfect and not marked or damaged in any way. Um, so, yes, that that will give you a naked eye view. Obviously, the, the sun is, uh, well, in, it's usually the size of the moon. The moon and the sun, you know, in the sky sort of thing, half a degree roughly. But I say <clears throat> under this circumstance, the moon is slightly smaller than the sun. But uh, that won't matter for our particular perspective in the UK. But uh, eclipse glasses will still show you it, but obviously it'll be a naked eye view. The sun will appear small, only about half a degree across on the sky. Um, one thing you mustn't do is actually use the glasses, the eclipse glasses, and put them over binoculars thinking that'll work. Don't. Don't do that whatsoever. You need to have the objectives of the binoculars completely covered properly sort of thing. Um, so I would never, ever say use the eclipse glasses because I've, I've seen somebody try it and whatnot and um, they got a reprimand from me. Oh, right, <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, it was the safety, you know. It, yeah, you, good They've for you. got to think safety. So you've got to stop them, you know. The, the, you know it's one of those things you have to say something, you know. I said, don't do that. You, you, you will damage your eyes. It doesn't work. Because they put them on the inside, on the eye cups. Oh my goodness! And the and the problem here is that the magnification, the focusing of the light, has already taken place from the front objectives. So by the time the light hits the eyepiece, sort of thing, it's highly concentrated. That's where it'll literally burn a hole straight through the eclipse glasses and w within an instant. Oh my so, goodness! So you know, just yeah, I've I've seen it done. It, it's frightening, sort of thing. You, you, you shake your head and you say, no, 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 don't do it. You know, so golden rule: don't use eclipse glasses with binoculars whatsoever. Eclipse glasses are just for the naked eye, but they will give you a good view. It's just that it'll be a bit small. So this is where having proper approved filters, proper telescope will give you a much more satisfactory view of the actual progress. And again, we mentioned the clockwork of the solar system. Again, we're getting a brilliant example, aren't mm. we? We're seeing the moon in its orbit pass partially in front of the sun. So then the clockwork motion of the solar system sort of thing, you know, on display for all to see. You know, I think it's absolutely brilliant. 
Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I am personally personally looking forward to it. Again, you know, as we say, provided the, the weather holds up. But as I suppose talking of bad weather and talking of clouds, there are actually, <laughs> this, that's quite a nice segue, isn't it? There is actually... Brilliant, uh, brilliant. I love it. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> there is actually a nice uh, astronomical cloud display, which is beginning, generally kicks off towards the end of May. Tell us all about that, Paul. The noctilucent clouds, these are night shining clouds. And basically, we see them after the sun has set. Now, now, normal clouds, when the sun has set, even in the summer, normal clouds go up, the highest clouds go up to about five miles high. But when the sun's below the horizon sort of thing, even in the summer, those clouds are still in darkness. And so you get the apparition whereby if you see shining clouds late at night during June sort of thing and into July, they will be these noctilucent clouds. And they're around about 50 miles up in the sky. So they're still in direct sunlight, which is why we can see them. And they're often composed of ice crystals. And so that's why they're very reflective and can be quite you know, beautiful. And you get all sorts of patterns developing. They can be short-lived. They can dissipate very quickly. Sometimes you get a display that lasts all night. And so they gradually move from sort of like the northwest part of the sky to the north and then into the northeast ready for the sunrise. So they are absolutely gorgeous sort of thing, you know. And I, I photographed one a few years ago. There was a big antenna we have not too far from us in actual fact. And it looked, this, this noctilucent patch looked like a dolphin. Well, I'm convinced it looks like a dolphin sort of thing, you know. <laughs> Again, it's a bit like seeing shapes in clouds, isn't it, sort of thing. You start to see shapes. But they're, they're gorgeous and there's this faint shimmering effect. And I say, sometimes they're fairly static and then dissipate. Sometimes you can see them rippling and changing as you watch sort of thing. So definitely look out. This is the season uh, for the noctilucent cloud sort of thing. It's it started. I, I haven't seen any yet, as usual. <laughs> <laughs> I only saw one display last year. I was very disappointed. Several people reporting them. And I missed the display when the comet, Neowise, was amongst them. Oh, fantastic. oh I, I could have cried. I could have cried. But that's <laughs> one of those things. We haven't got a comet this year, but the noctilucent clouds, you know, should be kicking off and hopefully we'll get a decent display this year as well. Um, you know, would you would you recommend looking at those through through binoculars or anything like that? Um, you, they are a naked eye phenomenon, but you know you can see far more structure if you use a pair of binoculars. I wouldn't bother with a telescope; it's too much magnification. But binoculars will give you a nice view, and you can examine some of the ripples that are taking place in the clouds if they're occurring, and uh, watch the changing structure as it happens. So yes, have a pair of binoculars. But I say I think a telescope is a is like a sledgehammer to crack a nut sort of yeah. thing. You know, it's too much <laughs> magnification. But ten by fifties or seven by fifty binoculars, that sort of thing give you a good view and you can home in on particular bright patches and see how they're evolving during the course of the evening, sort of late night sort of thing. But you must, again, you've got to wait for the sun to set sort of thing. But you you, you soon start to realise there's something wrong with the northern sky when the sky has got light clouds in it and they should be dark. Yeah. You should barely be able to see them. So, yeah, definitely worth looking out for them just in case we get some. I say, I didn't have much last year, but I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed this year. <laughs> Nice one. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we, we started off the podcast by sort of talking about that perhaps misconception that, you know, June and July, um, you know, can be bad times for stargazing and astronomy and, you know, looking at the night sky. Um, but I, 
fairly satisfied that throughout the course of this episode, we've sort of dispelled that that myth. What do you think, Paul? <laughs> I, I think we have. I mean, there is plenty to look at sort of thing. And there's lots of other little conjunctions with the moon and various stars that we haven't had time to put in as well. So uh, there's lots to see sort of thing. It's just a case of dispelling this myth that summer is time to actually go to bed and sort of like and, and put your telescopes and equipment away. No, no. Uh, clean it by all means sort of thing. But yes, there are things we can observe. Indeed, indeed. Okay, well, uh, thanks very much for for joining me again, once again, Paul. Um, And, you know, clear skies, happy observing, and uh, I'll, I'll speak to you next episode. Thank you very much. You take care, Ian. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Diary podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. 